Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley. I'm here with Leo Arcanal. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for joining. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 31st, 2023. So the first thing I wanted to mention and I saw, um, which I think kind of doesn't come as a huge surprise, but... Uh, it was a bleeping computer article, and it was uh, titled uh, "Israel's Largest Oil Refinery Reps Website Offline After DDoS Attack." Um, the oil refinery group was the Bazan Group, as previously formerly known as the Oil Refineries Ltd. But they're a pretty big player and um, a big company in the space, and it was attributed to, or at least the hacktivist group, uh, our Iranian hacktivist group called Cyber Avengers. They're the ones that kind of claim the breach. And people were able to determine that, yes, the site was taken offline or would appear to be, but then also it looked like maybe they were under attack and they may have put in some geo-blocking just to kind of like survive the onslaught of what a DDoS looked like. So people in Israel apparently had no issues um, get, getting access to the site. So while I thought that was like a really good response, um, when you think about what your your business is about and who what resources you may have, I thought of you know geo blocking that actually is kind of a good step you know for kind of helping sustain what you're trying to keep alive kind of thing. Um, so that was a really cool move. But the other thing that the uh, Cyber Avengers, that Iranian hacktivist group, they did a lot of claiming of access to a bunch of other things and shared of you know screenshots and and so forth. Um, I made some claims on exploiting checkpoint firewall. And Checkpoint even came back. I know Checkpoint's an uh, Israeli uh, company as well. Said that the exploits they were referring to don't really exist or the vulnerabilities. And then um, they were also, the company was claiming that the screenshots that were being shared weren't real and weren't really, you know, paid too much attention to those. Um, but, you know, one of the things I kind of think about, and, you know, obviously there's kind of some conflict and some turmoil in, in that region a little bit. And that is... Uh, Places like infrastructure can be a great target, but we also see the use of misinformation. So, you know, when you think of like cyber attacks and agendas, there's a lot of that. So, you know, when you think about being, you know, possibly involved in something like that or, or could be kind of victim to something like that, I guess those are the two areas you really want to think about. And the misinformation piece is kind of funny to me just because, um, you know, it's pretty bold to say you did something uh, and then people have to go obviously prove that you either did or did not. But uh, yeah, so it was kind of an interesting little read uh, just to kind of see what kind of the effects there were, but it seemed like it was kind of a benign thing overall, but obviously there's going to be some conflict and you can kind of suspect there might be some additional, you know, following activity or attempts. Yeah, no, that, that's pretty interesting, uh, especially the whole I did this kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if their goal was to get someone to say Cyber Avengers on a podcast about cybersecurity, guess what? They won. They won. They it. So I'm done here. I'm throwing the towel. I'll do this. It's all you from now on. Yeah. So I found this very ironic that last week we were talking about DDoS. Um, the fact that this came out. Um, and I found that geo-blocking a very novel fix for their problem um because you know so the idea that it's an israeli company why would you and i'm sure there's answers for this that are outside my scope but thinking from a defender's perspective um i wouldn't want someone or someone all over the world trying to contact or you know hit my uh my resources that i need um from other countries 
in case this happens. Like, if because it's Israel, I would want people from inside Israel to communicate. Now, I I get that there's a lot of business stuff out there that right, yeah, which I get. But the fact that they could do that and that they aren't, um. So they're an Israeli-based company that that like all right, yeah, we're just gonna focus on Israeli people content or contracting us. Um, this also thought I thought of the um, fail open versus fail close conundrum. Um, and I was thinking about this. So fail open is you know if they are getting hammered and they fail open because they need availability, all that traffic goes through. So even if the malicious stuff could possibly get through. Uh, and I automatically think of availability when it comes to that. Fail mm. closed is like when they're getting attacked and you just shut everything down so you cut off all communication, um, which could impact your know, business. Uh, and uh, I was going to, I wanted to pick your brain from that perspective as well. Because looking at, um, and I, I was just recently listening to a podcast. Um, uh, by my uh, malicious life by cyber reason and around levy uh, and they talked about the saudi aramco mm, yeah uh, right the shamoon attack Bad. and it, it's funny that this was fresh in my mind i thought this company needs the that communication flowing because if not then product starts backing up people don't get their gas uh, or their energy and oil, and you know they don't get what they need, which could cause issues. Um, and I just thought, if, if they said they breached, or if they did the DDoS and then they breached them, what do you think it was? Do you think it was fail open? Do you think it was fail close? Or do you think this is just a um, the false flag? Yeah, I think one of the things you always see with activist groups is there's not a huge planning cycle. Right, so it's kind of like a knee-jerk reaction to something. That's kind of why they get activated. You know, some means so if something happens, there was enough motivation from do something. That's why DDoS is usually kind of a. I mean, it's a, obviously does have impact, but it's an easy go-to, and then other things may or may not succeed. So I don't even know. I mean, maybe their intentions were to actually try to get into the network, um, but it seems like the amount of information they shared. They would have done a lot more if they really want, like, with the kind of access they had, I guess. So, to me, it feels a lot like smoke and mirrors, what they were trying to pull, with what they were able to do. Because just, like, accessing something to say you did, it's kind of like, okay, well, what was the point, right? Um, But the one thing that you kind of made me think about when you talk about the geo-blocking and, like, open, fail open or fail close, like, the reason why I thought that was a really great response is I've seen geo-blocking as, like, a defensive strategy. And we know in cybersecurity, it kind of is more of a, filter right it kind of reduces some of the noise and things like that which can be good but also can be tough to manage because sometimes there's services that you may use and not know that there's some main data centers and things that utilize on the back end of those services other parts of the world right uh, we ran into this one time when we were looking at geo-blocking and there was parts of the netherlands we were going to block because we had enough intel to say hey there's a lot of attacks that come from that ip space because there's a lot of actual internet resources and data centers and services around the Netherlands. And so it kind of kind of bit us a little bit and we figured it out pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, those are things to consider. But as a response technique, I think it's kind of a brilliant one. That's something you kind of want to have that list, something you can drop in because, yes, it might interrupt some things. But, you know, depending on your business model and where you sit, obviously, those goes in your considerations. I mean, it's a pretty effective strategy because, you know, a lot of the noise, especially from a DDoS, it's not from a single source, right? It's scattered, and it's going to be scattered globally, um, typically. So, yeah, it was, it, I I thought that was very very interesting. For you know, it, it was genius. I'll say that because um, normally we have that in place, but you know, like you said, never is a response. More of as a static protection, right? So yeah, that's what I got. All right, well, uh, I'm good on that article. So for my first one, um, I am continuing the tradition of bringing up the VX Underground and Sentinel-1 partnership. I mean, they're good reads. I really enjoy it. Um, and like I said before, it gives these independent researchers or possibly you know these researchers that work for a company that um, they just don't have the 
platform available or the platform at this level. Um, but the X Underground Sentinel One ran a malware research challenge, and the net um, they've been posting the um, the uh, they've posted the winner first. And now they're going on through. I don't know how many they're going to do, uh, but I look forward to reading them each time. Um, but this one is titled "The Nightmare of Destructive Malware from Wiper to Swift Slicer," and um, the researcher and I apologize if I butcher this, um, but Natasha Bakir, may uh, if not, I apologize. Um, they researched and summarized a lot of wipers. So they looked at Shamoon, they looked at Whispergate, the Hermetic Wiper, and they talked about each attack, now briefly, and gave them a quick history, but then they really dove into the techniques of these wipers, which that is the most interesting and the most useful information, I think, from this article, uh, looking at uh, like the techniques that they witnessed and they listed are enumerating the file system, overwriting the disk with other data like zero, like zero bytes, uh, corrupting the NBR, the master boot record, and the MFP, uh, fragmenting um, fragmenting disks. Uh, you, you know, all these all these techniques that are commonly used by wipers. Um, so as a threat hunter. The first thing I think about is, uh, or sorry, MFT is master file table too. I forgot I list out MBR, but not MFT. Um, but all these techniques can give you an idea of what's in your environment. So if I took this article and I said I want to create a hunt based off of enumerating the file system technique, what does that look like? Um, you know, what commands can be thrown? What living off the land binaries can be used? Uh, and so on. You can start there. And then once you start looking at the other techniques and figuring out what tools are needed or what commands or what software or whatever, when you start the hunt form and you start finding evidence of that activity, it gives you the idea of what you're dealing with. Um, not only from a wiper perspective, uh, we're not just, you know, this is a piece of malware, but you can start saying, well, we're seeing all these techniques and I know wipers look like this. Ransomware might like look like this as well. Or you might be finding these techniques, um, or some of them, and realize that you're dealing with another human. Uh, because whenever we talk about hunting for behaviors, hunting for TTPs, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures, we always try to focus on the human element versus the automated section of it. But these things can be done by a human. So if you start uncovering activity and evidence of this happening, you might want to stop and say, all right, how far have we come? What have we found? We need to start looking and hunting for other techniques that can be used by humans. Uh, and, you know, whatever resource you choose, there are plenty out there. Um, they, you, you can start continuing your investigation. Uh, but I, I really like that they called that out about not only, like, we just, it wasn't just a list of IOCs, right? It was like, hey, here's the wipers we looked at, here's the history, and here are techniques that were used, um, which are, you know, it is extremely important from a threat hire's perspective. And, of course, I always enjoy the screenshots and the, um, the breakdown of the code and the analysis that they did. So this was, once again, a very well-done article, um, and I shout-out to... Uh, the researcher and VX Underground Sentinel One for doing this. Now, I thought there's some really interesting points in here, and it was kind of interesting too. And we talked about the uh, hacktivist group, right, and their way of kind of being destructive or causing kind of interference in some ways is the DDoS. And you look at an APT group, and they actually leverage getting access first, and then their destructiveness is like sh actually more permanent, right? Um, so kind of uh, interesting behaviors just from looking at adversaries and the thought processes and end goals as well. Um, but I liked how they started off with Shamoon. You know, that's such a fantastic uh, example of Wiper being hugely effective. And what was interesting about that was even though they did replace a lot of the drives and rebuild a lot of things, that Wiper then was just the master boot record, which 
if people aren't familiar with the master boot record, it basically is just like the 512 bytes on a disk that tells basically the system where to go on the drive to load the operating system. Um, and it can be fixed if the, if you have an installer CD, right? So, or install, yeah, disk, I say CD, I don't know if people still use those, right? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's so like the, they could have rebuilt all those systems too um, at a time based on whatever they want to make sure to stay, have no risk associated because it's so impactful when that happened. Um, but yeah, then they go through all the different wipers. And then what I also saw was they said that there's the most common technique for all these wipers actually being utilized or, you know, I guess distributed was GPO using group policy objects. Uh, and you know, we've seen that too, when we've looked and I want to say most of the ransomware we looked at ransomware groups don't use as popular or as, as often, I would say, as we've seen with these APT groups with Russia, with the Ukrainian stuff, it seems to be very consistent technique. Um, and then also the writing, they started shifting to writing things in go and, you know, I, I know Go is popular, but this article really highlighted why it's a good language to write malware in. Um, and it never really, like, I guess, dawned on me until I was kind of reading through this. But, you know, one of the main reasons is you can write it once, and then when you compile it, you can compile it for any system. You know, you don't have to worry about, oh, I'm building something for Linux, I'm building something for Windows, I'm building something for whatever. Um, it becomes much easier to then make different versions of the code for different targets. Um, which can be hugely beneficial, especially, you know, if you're doing a wiper, you're going to have different types of systems you want to wipe. So that, that for one is good, but also, um, it makes it really hard to reverse. So you have to do more dynamic analysis of go malware than some of the static stuff, because that go doesn't use the registers like normal code kind of does where it basically says where, where code needs to be stored, how it's going to be used. It kind of puts the code directly on the stack, which is the memory stack that gets basically how the code gets executed down the stack. Um, and then it gets put there in the right place. So it's, it makes it a lot tougher to do that unless you have the right tools and you kind of have to like segment different functions out while you're doing your analysis to kind of see what they do. Um, so it makes it harder to reverse as well. So think about it, really convenient, harder to understand. Um, it's like a great language and tool to go for, go to for that so that was really insightful too i really liked how they kind of explained that and called that out there towards the end does that does that pretty much oh i have two questions does that pretty much solve the backwards compatibility issue where like threat actors used to do uh create malware in 32-bit uh, version so it hit 64-bit and 32-bit and does it automatically sense which systems in it or does that have to be manually done no, I think it's still compiled that way, but nowadays, I mean, the reason why everyone always did 32-bit was it was always going to be compatible. If you hit a 64-bit system, it wouldn't matter. It would still execute, but you can't do that with the inverse. But now the 32-bit systems are kind of falling off. Um, yeah, you kind of see more 64-bit, I think, malware. It's becoming more common. Uh, but that was really nice, right? When people did have to write, they wrote everything for 32-bit, and they kind of stood out as a sore thumb for a while as we are transitioning. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Microsoft can just like go to the next 128 bit. Yeah, right? Because <laughs> I like that. I like that SysFile 64 red flag that you see. Yeah. yeah. It was a good article, though. Thanks. Uh, what, what's next? So, the next one I want to pull up, it's another <laughs> Believing Computer um, article that I was looking at. And it just caught my eye because I've been looking at. Uh, ransomware targeting of the VMware ESXi servers. And this one's titled Linux version of Abyss Locker ransomware targets VMware ESXi servers. And basically, you know, they're kind of calling out how now there's this Abyss Locker operation and their latest development is their Linux encryptor that targets VMware, their ESXi servers, which is how they're the hypervisor um, that's running all the virtual environments. And the only reason why I, I call this out is I've been looking at this when I first started seeing the ESXi stuff happening when it came to encryption. And it's, everyone's using the same kind of methods, right? We talk about how a lot of the ransomware groups do kind of share, but when it comes to ESXi servers, I mean, it's almost sometimes the same code. They're getting kind of plopped into different you know places. But the one thing I really wanted to call out here, and they do a good job showing it, 
is they mentioned that, you know, one of the, or some of the commands you see, they didn't say which one would specifically be called, but they said they've seen, you know, any other in the list. And it was the ESX CLI command to basically enumerate the VMs that were running and then basically do different kills. So you can do like a soft, hard, or force kill. Usually always force kill so that, you know, machines have to be basically brought offline before they can be encrypted. Um, it doesn't, the encryptions usually don't work very well. Um, if it's live, I mean, I'm sure it might make some things janky and maybe not work well, but it doesn't, you know, capture everything, but is, well, this ESX CLI is, it gets logged, but you have to enable the logging and it's definitely the data you want to, if you use EX, I, I hate trying to say this acronym up and over again, ESX CLI, if you use ESXi servers, you should be collecting this data, um, Hands down, I mean, obviously, people have to remote in um, to typically to be able to use this. So you're kind of looking at where people have already gotten probably administrative access in some way. So there's going to be some activity before all this that you can detect on as far as those typical vectors. But if you have this data source, it can be very apparent when things are kind of going awry based on the common commands that are being used. And usually it's listing things and killing things for the first part. And then there's some other things that they, they will do with moving packages over and, and executing things as well. Um, but they kind of do a pretty good write-up to kind of show what it is they're looking at, what are the extensions um, you typically would see that are being targeted. Uh, and then they make some comparisons to other types of ransomware groups and things as well. But yeah, I just wanted to call that out because, I, you know, I was wondering, yeah, like I get excited like, ooh, is there something new, right? with how people are attacking or encrypting the ESXi servers, and it's not. It's just gain access and run the same type of commands and then drop your encryptor and you're good. Um, so I just want to call that out because, hey, you know, it's something people should be paying attention to if they're not already. Yeah, I like that you called out, hey, look at this log source. If you're not, this is very important. If you're not logging it or auditing it, do it now. Um, because that's a huge task or battle for all for organizations, um, mature organizations, they pretty much have it like ironed out, but less mature or just beginning organizations or small and medium businesses that, you know, cybersecurity is not, not so much an afterthought, but more of a, I need to outsource this or I don't have the staff to do it. I, I don't think a small or medium business owner is going to be thinking, oh, do I need to audit Microsoft Windows PowerShell operational log, you know. Um, mm. But if you're running this, yeah, I, I feel like that's a good call to say, check this out. Um, I am bummed that you didn't mention Hello Kitty, uh, just for the fact that I, mean, I was waiting for it, it didn't happen. Uh, especially because it's it says right there, ransom, ransomware expert Michael Gillespie said that the Abyss Locker Linux encryptor is based on Hello Kitty using ChaCha encryption instead. Like that, that's just gold right there. Um, you can't normally read that in a sentence and be worried um, about it. Because one thing I was thinking about was, uh, what is the company Avast that I know? They're really good at coming up with public decryptors and providing those to the victims and the public for free. And so I was, I was looking for that call out, which actually didn't happen. Um, but more importantly, my question to you is, since you've been studying this because you've been, you know, researching it, is are there other commands that you've seen that will get you to the same point of encrypting these um, VMs? And if so, is it a different log source or is it just a different uh, command altogether? No, so, I mean, the two commands they call it here are consistent every time. I have seen where they, they'll they try to, from the command line, do like kind of a savvy loop, you know, like a for loop where they enumerate the list and they feed the results from that list one by one um, to do all the kill process to make it fast and efficient. So that was one thing I thought was interesting here was it looks like they're still doing variables to drop in the actual VM because the VM list is like a almost looks like a UUID or GUID, right? As far as how the VM is identified and that's being dropped in. Um, so they might be doing something similar but the snippet they have don't show that. But it's like a variation of the same thing. So when I was looking at this before, I'm basically looking for the command line that contains, you know, specific key arguments and terms. Um, 
So that helps me identify that specific piece. The only thing that I've seen that changes is sometimes uh, they will implement the encryptor differently. Like once they kill everything, the way they move it over there and execute it might be slightly differently depending on what they're using and you know how they how they use their tool kind of thing. Because um, I've also seen where um, other than encrypting, putting back doors and things in there, and they load. I'm trying to think of the packages, but there's like a specific package when you want to update or add or add capabilities to ESXi, and um, usually it's this typical package install commands you would see except for there's a lot of uh, dash force associated with it because the malicious packages aren't signed correctly and that's how you bypass all those signing and if you say force you're saying don't worry about all those other controls or things that are like hey warning this that um it just makes it happen so that'd be the other thing to kind of look out for too um but yeah cool uh well thanks for that insight um and as always the extra log source um, it's always something fun to look at. Yeah. So what do you got next? So the next up is um, an article, um, and it's by the InSync group. That's or InSync, I N S I K T, not InSync, uh, like Justin Timberlake. Um, but it's the InSync group um, by Reported Future, and they uh, it's a report on Blue Bravo which is a Russian state actor that they said their activity overlaps with APT-29 and Midnight Blizzard. Um, they are both uh, both op or operations of APT-29 and Midnight Blizzard have been previously attributed to Russians for intelligence. Um, so pretty strong indication that this is nation-state. Um, now, they go through, they talk about how they noticed uh, or they identified um, three custom tools that uh, may or may not have been seen um, in the wild. Uh, they provided good descriptions of it. Um, but I don't, I don't mean to gloss over this article by any means. First of all, it's, it's a lengthy one, so it's really full of data. Um, but as once again, as a threat hunter, there's certain things that I immediately gravitate towards, right? Uh, like the infection chain is great. So it, you know, it's got a phishing email. Uh, it's got the decoy document. Redirects to a website. Um, still using the zip and ISO file download, um, like initial access, where um, you know once the zip or the ISO is clicked, that runs the malware, and then the other, the next stage or second stage um, is actually, um, you know, exploited. Um, they provide you with the infrastructure that they are using, which is great. Um, even pictures, they compare um, lore documents um, based off of um, the, uh, I believe, the campaigns. Um, and but, as like I normally go to, they got screenshots of code, which is nice because once again, I'm going back to uh, static analysis not being my strong point. I always appreciate when they include stuff like this to kind of walk you through um, what are the pieces, what does the code mean, and give you a description of it. And once again, something that you can't just picture in your head, but something that they actually pulled from the, uh, from the environment or from the code itself. Then it goes through and gets to my favorite part, where it starts including uh, living off the land binaries, it includes the logs, um, or the commands that were run. And one that I found that I actually had to do some research on was um, chcp.exe uh, from Windows. Now, looking at it, or remind yourself, looking at it, um, I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. It's changed, it says it changes the active console code page. If used without parameters, CHCP displays the number of the active console code page. Still didn't, uh, that didn't really tell me much. Um, so I went down, you know, just followed the, um, checked out the, um, the, the parameters, sorry, or the table on the documentation and I said code page 437 is United States. So that's actually the first one I did or the first man I ran was CHCP just to see 
what that and it showed up 437 um which if you're not aware i'm in the united states um but then i was looking at the commands that were being run by so is that for identification for like where their target was kind of thing i'm guessing well actually no no so um not for their target but how they ran it they used command.exe slash c um, and then they set the code page. So they ran CHCP, and then they put 65,001. Um, and testing this in the lab, because I was curious of what, you know, what the output looks like, what it does, is by by setting that to 65,001, there's nothing in the documentation that reflects that. So it doesn't really tell me the country, region, or language. Um, but after, once I ran the CHCP again, I see that, it set the region to 65,001, which could just be a, a random number. Um, it could be hard-coded. I'm not sure. But what they did is they linked or they chained a command to it. So they did CHCP and set it to 65,000. Then they had the good old um, greater than. And then they said, so output to null. And then still in the same chain, they had it, uh, they ran an and who am I? So, and I, I'm pretty sure if you, so I ran this in the environment, um, it will run CHCP, but it won't output the results. Then it actually, it runs who am. So if you were to look at the logs and it, I don't, I'm gonna have to verify this, but I'm pretty sure that once you put that um, output signal or the the greater than, that in the logs it'll only capture the first yeah. portion of the command. So they might not, right, right. So they're not going to see the who am I. They're going to see the uh, CHCP sixty five hundred, um, which in its own point, if you're not familiar with it. Um, like I wasn't, and you do some research, uh, you know, you'll figure out that that seems kind of anomalous. But if you had no clue and you didn't have the time to research, you might get thrown off and, you know, you don't know where to go. That's um, a great trait graph for hiding command line. Frustrating that. <laughs> um, but there are ways that you can... Um, I believe there's ways that you can actually figure out what happened anyways. Um, but still, to the to the un if you are just looking at the logs, you'll miss it. Um, and they did that with every, basically every living off the land binary that they abused. It was always the CHCP 65,001. Yep. They were just hiding their tracks. The new people like command line, especially for low bends, and that's kind of smart. So then really you're looking at a frequency of how often are they using something that's not commonly used. And and honestly, as the as I was trying to recreate this, it makes it easier because all you have to do is hit the up button. Oh yeah. Right? <laughs> like all you have to do. Um I I think and I, I was I was very curious because I'm actually looking at our sim right now. Um I see it. So I don't know if this was an update by Syswan. Oh. No, 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 no. Okay. Beautiful. I'm actually glad I did this. Sorry, sorry, listeners, for screaming at the mic. Um, so if and this is something I don't enjoy uh to say lightly. The reason I know I rant and rave about Sysmon a lot. But the reason I really love Sysmon is that it provides parent command line arguments when Windows native... And that's where you see it, huh? Yes. So yeah. looking at the commands when CHCP is the child process and looking at the command line arguments, all you see is CHCP 65001. But if you look at the parent command line arguments that were thrown before that, you see that it's 
you see the command, uh, the command lines, you see the whole thing. Um, now, granted, the carrot is a special character, so it looks like uh, at GT semicolon. Um, but, no, or sorry, that's greater than, I guess. Um, but you can capture that. So now you're looking at one... Which you don't see on normal Windows process logs. They don't have the parent command line there. Right, and if you didn't know that, all you would see is the CHCP and the Who Am I that are run. You might not track it down based off its parent process ID, because uh, that if you use your parent process ID, you could be able to correlate it. Because looking at the traffic now, it's a two or it's a one to two. So command because you ran two commands in one command line argument or in one command. Sorry, because you ran two commands using one command line, that parent has now become the child of two processes. So you'd be able to link that back using the parent process ID. But if you were still able to do that in Windows, you still would be missing the command line arguments of the parent. Sorry. <laughs> they good? Yeah. Um, no, that, and of course, um, I really like articles like these because it gets me thinking and gets me researching. Um, doing, I mean, doing what we like to do. Um, but that was, that was actually a, I guess, a quick, fun thread hunting tips and tricks. Is that one install Syslon for parent command line arguments? Two, um, look for parent processes spawning multiple shops. Well, yeah, and then, you know, there's something to be said there because um, a lot of people don't like the parent command line. I mean, they don't see the significance, I don't say like, because it's usually duplicative as far as the data you're collecting. So you're like, I see it in both places. Why do I need one versus the other? And I'm not saying it's a great hunt to go off this mindset either because I know there are going to be a lot of false positives. I don't know what they would look like. But, I mean, it would be an interesting data study to say, well, how often does the parent command line differ from the command line of the child process? Right? That would be a good, you know, yeah. There's some programs that I know just do it because that's, I, I've seen it and, you know, whatever. But, you know, that's, you know, an, an idea for how you might be able to group and maybe exclude things or, or have ways to aggregate things to actually find things like you described. Uh, yeah, uncharacteristic things where things aren't being completely passed to the, to the child process command line field um but yeah the one thing that really stood out to me when you talk about i mean that's sophistication as far as kind of hiding your tracks if people aren't using sysmon um but was one of the ways they were delivering some of their payloads to they talked through a few different um malwares like i clicked through and got to the pdf report and they kind of do like a historical view of how this malware is matured and something that did stay consistent that i've heard the technique and never really looked into it um and it's html smuggling and the idea there is basically they're compromising legitimate websites to host their malware and how html smuggling works is usually when you have more than one web server kind of working together in a way and in the typical setup where you would see this there's one that's like proxying proxying the web requests to the web server um, and this could be even like a, a security tool, like a laugh, right? Um, but what ends up happening is you take advantage of the actual HTTP protocol. So when people look at writing exploits or looking for vulnerabilities, one of the things that a lot of people do is what is the protocol supposed to do? And what are the things that, you know, I can tweak that won't completely just break it? And so an example of HTML smuggling is... Um, putting things in the header uh, that may be seen by whatever the proxy is of the web server that the web server out there will see differently. Um, and what I mean by that, and this is why it's really good to do all, all there's a lot of testing to figure out well, what kind of web server are they using? How does it interpret the header and things? But an example um, is, for instance, if you were to put, um, you know, in your header, you see, you know, host something you know, host is the actual host, and then you have like content length, and you have transfer encoding. Well, in that case, 
that would be trying to take advantage of HTML smuggling because you can't have content link and transfer encoding according to the protocol in the same thing. So those web servers might handle and look at that differently. So one might just look at the content link and say, oh, there's nothing seen. It passes something on to the far end and it's actually looking at, oh, get sensitive info at this specific part of the web server. It kind of bypasses a bunch of things. And you can do the same thing with putting things, right? So that's how they're putting their malware there. And then with specific requests, they were able to pull down this malware and do things like that. Um, so another example to kind of make it even simpler, you know, what if you were to post two content links, which is not common. You know, when you look at a typical header, you're not going to see content link 44, then content link 16. Um, but one might look at the first content link, one server or proxy, and that's what it'll interpret for the content link. And then the next server might not look at the first, I might skip to the last scene content like this based on how it processes it, because it's all based on coding, right? Um, but it's just a really interesting and sophisticated, you know, strategy because you kind of have to know the infrastructure you're attacking or do enough testing to be able to do this and then to have it part of your distribution and stuff on top of that, not just getting access to something. Um, it's pretty crafty. So that was a, a technique that I wasn't super familiar with. Um, but it makes sense. Um, and I've, I've heard about it, so I know people are using it, but it seemed this Russian group that was doing all these different malware campaigns, this became a pretty popular technique for them. Um, so when we talk about, you know, once someone figures out something that works, uh, and it seems like it's, I wouldn't say it's hard to detect because when you look at the header, it's pretty obvious when there's things that are repeated or out of bounds, but I guarantee there's not a lot of people looking, right? And that's kind of, the advantage there so um but yeah that was really insightful i enjoyed that one and uh what i forgot to mention was the shout out at the end um so not not only did they give you an indicators compromise um and all this other great information but as usual um one of my favorite parts is that they mapped it to the minor attack framework which uh, I, I probably sound like a broken record <laughs> week after week but if you can use the MitreTech framework to drive your hunting, um, you're in a good place. You've got a lot of good information. You've got a lot of historic techniques that threat actors and adversaries have used in the past. And they, they give you the same level of information um, per technique. Um, and I always look to see if those are included in a report simply because um, that can, I can kind of figure out where I need to go what log sources I need to look at as well whenever it comes to, um, you know, planning the hunt. Uh, yep. a, re a really good article. I'm going to start uh, reading more of these um, itself. But so, yeah. can you bring us home? Yeah, so this one, I, I just thought this was a, a fun read and it really kind of highlights some things. Um, so there's... Uh, not too much to really dig into, but it's good to kind of put your eyes on and give you uh, things to think about. So it's from the Heimdall Security, and it's a blog, and it's it's dark power ransomware using vulnerable dynamic link libraries in resolved API flow. So what does that really means is it, a lot of malware, um, instead of writing its own code for the entirety to do all the operations, they've gotten smart to use the operating system as much as possible. And there's good reasons, right? Less things to develop that can potentially break, but also it's easier for your code to blend in and not have signatures necessarily associated with it to make it easy to be identified. Because when malware was so unique and kind of containerized like it like it has been historically, you know, antivirus was somewhat effective, right? It can see certain signatures of part of the code or whatever and identify those pretty easily. But if it, if it runs like everything else on the computer, um, it stand, doesn't stand out as, as much. But basically does a whole drill down, oh, and then why the API thing is all the DLL files, they usually have all the functions that you need to call to do certain things. And it basically, what they did was map the DLLs that were being loaded for dark power ransomware and what API calls they were actually using within those DLLs. So it was kind of just a really insightful analysis um, that was super cool. Um, but, you know, they, they mapped a bunch of DLLs um, and then all the different uh, APIs, like I mentioned, and they describe what every DLL is for. 
they associate any CVEs or other malware families that have used this DLL in this manner um, for every single one of them. So it's a, it's a great informative write-up that I think people should at least just check out um, just to kind of see, you know, how people are using these APIs and, and you know, what's the purpose? Because, I mean, there's a lot of APIs used here, and so there's a lot of things you can just learn just by getting familiar with. Hey, I mean, I think the most frustrating thing is there's still not a lot of tools that I think they give great insights into identifying when these APIs are used. You can see DLLs being loaded, um, which, you know, image loads and things like that. So you can kind of say, hey, if we have all these DLLs being loaded, that might be suspicious. But that's that's the tough pattern to really pull off because um, there's a lot of things that load a lot of the same DLLs. That's why they're there, right? They're supposed to be shared. Um, but it's definitely worth checking out. There's a lot of really interesting things that they've grouped together and they visualize and they show. So I really just want to bring it up for, for that reason, you know, in particular, and also kind of explain like, why is it important? Uh, but yeah, if you, if you're listening and you know, you really want to understand how kind of software can kind of live off the land as well, this is kind of how it does it. And it, it does it in a very successful manner. So, so yeah. I loved the sack that they did this with the DLLs because um with, like I said great resource uh, and this is a great sign fully um because you know I know you know run DLL has been abused many times for our adversaries to um execute things and you know continue on to their objective. I know it's a, what a dynamic link library is, but I've never spent the time to figure out what they do because, to be fair, if they if um if a, if an adversary drops their own DLL, does it really matter what it does, um from like an instant response point or a threat running point? Because you see, it's executed. My job is to track down and see what else it does. So if it does make a, um, if it makes a network connection. I'm looking for that. If it modifies the registry key, you know, I'm looking for that. I'm not looking to figure out exactly what it is. So the fact that they break kernel 32 DLL down and tells me what it does, and like you said, the CVEs that are tied to it, and then some of them are tied to ransomware or to the malware, like that, this, it's great. I, I love this resource. Um, I wish more of this existed. No. We need better ways to detect this stuff too, though. I feel like that's a gap that uh, we need to figure out how to fill at some point in the industry is visibility to this where it's not too aggressive. Because I think why there's not is obviously API calls are happening continuously on an operating system and having that kind of visibility would be somewhat of a strain on really lower end machines. So, but yeah, your point, this is great. Yeah, yeah. it And it's... It's at a level that I can understand without having to be a coder or a program, um, mm-hmm. which I, I really appreciate. So um, definitely hats off to, uh, is it Vladimir? I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to insult the name. I'm really bad at names as well, but yeah, Vladimir <laughs> Finger. There we go. I don't know. Unter, unter, I've already messed up his name. My apologies. He's a side of one though. I like the title. <laughs> but yeah, uh, great fun. All right. Well, I think that kind of closes us out. There's just a few mentions that I want to bring up before we head off. And that is, you know, we'll be at Black Hat in August. Um, so if you're going to be coming to Black Hat, please stop by. Uh, we're at booth 2817. Uh, love to talk threat hunting, kind of have conversations, show you some things, whatever. Uh, you also have a chance to enter to win one of four amazing giveaways. So that'd be exciting if you can show up and, and maybe win something along the way. Now, uh, we'll, we'll, we will be partnering with Recorded Future to show kind of how teams can operationalize threat intelligence with behavioral threat hunting. So there should be some pretty cool demos that will also be at the booth. Um, there is an exclusive happy hour event, Hunt Down a Good Time. Um, so you can stop by the booth and try to get an exclusive invite only um, kind of pass for that. So yeah, if you, if you're hearing this, you can come up, we can talk about that. And then if you're going to be showing up, uh, for any of the trainings early on Lee here, 
will be uh, providing training called Beyond IOCs, how to effectively threat hunt using TTPs and behaviors. I don't know if you want to give any more additional information on that. Yeah, no, I, I had the privilege and the honor to uh, have my training accept or our training accepted at Black Hat this year, where we'll I, we'll be doing what we talk about. Um, I know we mentioned that we op how to operationalize data, or hey, I found this artifact interesting, so I'm going to start a hunt with it. Uh, but, but what we're actually doing is we talk. Of course, we always start with the lecture, right? Build a foundation for everyone to you know, so we're on the same page. That includes some resources like the MITRE attack framework, uh, Lucky Martin Cyber Kill Chain, the Pyramid of Pain, and, and so on. I think there's a lot of others. But we're talking about what are good resources that we can use and how we can use them. Then we actually, I could stop saying actually, cut that out. <laughs> then we get an op or an Intel report. And we will walk through the process of how do we find what's significant or how can we find an interesting artifact that we can use to create a hypothesis. Because part of the threat hunting methodology is finding out a place to start. And that's normally the question is, what activity do I think is happening in my environment? Once we operationalize the Intel report, we get our BMs fired up. We use the Elastic Sim to hunt, to take those hypotheses and apply them into the sim and hunt for some data. I'll be demonstrating a couple to begin with. We'll talk about findings, we'll talk about reports, and then day two, I kind of throw the students into the fire and they team up. They're gonna do all that we learned on their own in a supervised uh, environment they're going to be the ones running the hunt and showing me where to go, what artifacts they found, and then we discuss our findings. So I'm really excited for it because we have uh, we actually have two two-day sessions. So if you are at Black Hat early, uh, you could always sign up and register on site. And I'm really excited because this really is the passion. And I couldn't ask for anything answer. Yeah, cool. It'd be a good time. So uh, now I just want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. And so with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of July 31st, 2023. Happy hunting, everyone. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.